Darnell Nurse left it in the corner, gets up center, Perry, all right, we're back, and I guess I picked the wrong game to do a show for. Skipped yesterday. The Ducks get a 5-2 five, five, two, five, two win against the Colorado Avalanche, I think. Man, I missed that game. I didn't watch that game. So if you if you don't get on me for this. But the Ducks got a big win against probably the, one of the best teams in the league right now, best team in the Western Conference when they face them. And then the back-to-back tonight against the Vegas Golden Knights. A 5-2 score line, but it could have been much worse. John Gibson ended up making, I think, 44 saves in this one. And, uh, man, it, it, we know the Golden Knights are, are a good team, but this was a tough one tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely looked like they were um, just worn out. I mean, a back, second game of a back-to-back, the end of a long road trip, and the Golden Knights are notorious for being a fast, aggressive team, and they were thumped in their last game, so you knew they were going to come out pissed off, and uh, it was kind of the perfect storm, not to mention the injuries for the Ducks. It was kind of a perfect storm of uh, disaster. If you're wondering who's joining me tonight, because there's no Pat and there's no Jason, because our, our scheduling has been just horrible since the start of the season. I've got fellow Anaheim Ducks contributor with the hockey writer, Anthony Trudelli, joining me tonight. So if you didn't, I didn't get to that in the beginning. So if you're wondering who's joining me, that's who's with me tonight. And we're going to break down this game. To start it off, forward lines were the same from the game against Colorado. I guess no surprise there because it was one of the Ducks' best outings of the season against a great team. Uh, The only difference is I think it was probably probably about – Half an hour before game time, Hampus Lindholm is uh, announced that he's out with a lower body injury. We know Manson was on the IR. Andre Kasha was also just scratched for this game, but we know he's out with an upper body injury as well. So the Ducks defense pairs going into this game were Brendan Gooley and Cam Fowley, which we're used to. Uh, Michael Delzato and newbie Eric Goodbranson, which uh, normally that would be an iffy third pairing. You've got that as your second pairing in this game. And then the, I guess the third pairing we've all come to know so far this season in, in Jakob Larson and Kabinian Holzer. Not the best pairing in any game, but especially when you're going in a back-to-back against the Golden Knights. Uh, this kind of had the writing on the wall for, for a tough game for the Ducks defensively. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Delzato, I think, has had a relatively good season in the thir- in the bottom pairing. I mean, he's contributed on the offense, and he hasn't looked like too exposed. And Gabranson yesterday, or yeah, yesterday, was uh, had a couple good hits. Looked like he was he was going to be. I mean, obviously you don't know from one game, but uh, a good addition at first. But putting them up in a second in a second pairing with that many minutes against such a good team was a recipe for disaster. And it's tough to find out that your best defender is out right before the game. So uh, really, really first that was the first kind of kick in the you know what's for uh, for the Ducks. Yeah, and especially the game that Lidholm came off of, too, against Colorado. He posted three assists, kind of quietly had one of his best games of the season, so that's always a tough one. Uh, only non-injury scratch, which we've come kind of come used to this season, was Nick Delorier. There's that revolving door on left wing where it's either Comtois or Jones or Shore or Delorier seem to be the guys that get scratched. Every now and then it's Nick Ritchie, too. Uh, but getting into the game, uh, it seemed from the very start, which I guess is a trend for the rest of this game, Gerard Gurlant was trying to get Mark Stone out there pretty much as often as he can. 
I mean, I guess that's the best way to deploy Mark Stone is because he's just so good. I think he's one of the most underrated players in the league just because of how great and, and how effective he is in his own end. But then offensively, I think uh, similar to what the Ducks have done with Jakob Silverberg this year where they kind of give him a license to do whatever he wants in the offensive zone, it seems like Vegas has kind of told Mark Stone to kind of have some freedom in the offensive zone, which uh, the Senators kind of held him back on. And he's he's been arguably one of the best players in the league this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on top of that, his leadership, I just noticed tonight that he's, uh, I mean, he's already assistant captain. He just came at the trade deadline last year and he made some dynamic plays, both on goal scoring plays and uh, off the puck. Uh, There was one play, I think he came towards the end of the game over the blue line, kind of put it between his legs and tried to thread a pass uh, in the slot that didn't quite get through. But you can tell his creativity, his kind of thinking on the fly, all of that, like you mentioned, like Silverberg is uh, is an asset for the Golden Knights, and you, you can't blame Gallant for wanting to keep him on the ice that long. Uh, and then even uh, later on in the game, when the score's kind of out of hand, they 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 kept uh, they weren't necessarily rolling their lines. They kept the first and second line out there a pretty good amount. So uh, I, I think we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, it, it's like Mark Stone and. I believe he's with Patch Ready as well, and then obviously Statsny and, and was uh, up there with uh, Marshall Show and William Carlson too. Like those two lines that they have to begin with are, are some of the best top, you know, top six in the Western Conference, let alone the league. And, and then even the fourth line, you know, a lot of I, I guess Ryan Reeves and William Carey get a lot of grief for them still kind of being enforcers in this league. But you had Nicholas Waugh who's making his season debut, and that line seemed to be all over the place. For, for the Golden Knights yeah. tonight. I would argue they were kind of right up there. Obviously, Marsha Show and, and Carlson and, and Mark Stone and Pat Reddy were on the score sheet, but Ryan Reeves and, and, and Carrier, they connect for a goal later on that we'll talk about. But that line was buzzing tonight, and that, that's not a bad fourth line to have. Like That's a very physical, very tough fourth line, but they have some flair in there where they can put the puck in the back of the net. Yeah, I think you you have to look no further than the Stanley Cup Finals a couple years ago where Reeves had at least a couple goals. I think he had two goals in that final series against Washington. So he he can really bring it uh, both offensively, obviously physically, and and um, just that fourth line, you're right, is really good. And Roy, I didn't know much about coming into the game, but he kind of – we'll tell you, yeah, like you said, we'll talk about that goal in a second. But he showed his, uh, his ability to score. Maybe it was a little lucky. Uh, I think he had a lucky bounce yeah. there, but um, – yeah, that fourth line is is one of the better ones in the league. Well, let's get to the first goal because Maxim Comtois coming off two pretty good games where he's kind of been mucking it up in front of the net and he's got two goals in back-to-back games. And, and he's the guy who really gets this play going to get the Ducks' first goal. A nice puck retrieval behind the net kind of hounds Mark Fleury a bit and he's able to re- retrieve the puck. And he just throws a pass out to Ryan Getzlaff who... He has no choice but to shoot this one. He's been shooting the puck more, to be fair, but he has no choice but to, to one-time this one, and he ends up beating Mark Fleury 5-hole. Don't know if he was aiming for it, but he ends up getting a little bit of luck that it slides across the ice and beats him. And that's the that's Ryan Getzlaff's, I believe, fifth goal this season, the way he's been shooting the puck. I mean, that's not bad for him. I mean, it's a great start. The Ducks get the first goal of the game again. Yeah, they mentioned on the broadcast, this is, the I think, only the second season where he has, at this point, has three more goals than assists. He's, I mean, you always hear he's the pass-first guy, but he's clearly taken it upon himself to shoot. And that play was all around. I mean, it looked kind of like a relatively like mucking it up a little bit, but that pass into space by the defender, that stretch pass, I don't remember who exactly it was, but they bounced it indirectly off the boards and let Comtois skate onto it. And then Comtois just did a great job kind of retrieving the puck and then protecting it immediately. You made you made a note about the puck retrieval, and he just kind of swiveled his hips around, got his body in between the defender 
Twitter and then put it out front to Comtois, um, or sorry, Getzlaff, and Getzlaff split it between Marc-Andre Fleury's legs. The uh, uh, It was a real nice play all around. The, I do question what Riley Smith was doing on that play, uh, just kind of taking a tour of that corner instead of stopping at the side of the net with Comtois in, in possession of the puck. Uh but, I mean, you have to have breakdowns in order to score goals. Uh, and, obviously, Riley Smith probably wishes he hadn't done that <laughs> on the Vegas side. But just a nice a nice play overall by Comtois and a nice finish by Getzlab. Yeah, it's been nice to see him Comtois get more involved. And he, he's had a great opportunity pretty much since he's come up playing with Ryan Getzlaff at, at most of the time. And then he got moved down to a kid line with Steele and Terry. And he's been kind of moving all over the place. But, again, now that's points in three straight games for him. And, you know, it was really Sam Steele was the only guy so far that was really looking like he belonged in the NHL and, and just consistent in his poise, and, and he was putting up some points here and there too, and, and he just seemed like he was ready to go. And, and Troy Terry was struggling a bit. He's had his flashes here and there. And Max Jones, we really just haven't seen enough of him because he's been scratched a few games so far this season. And Maxim Comtois was the guy who said, you know, he needs to get things going. And I think the last three games has been a nice showing for him. Hopefully the consistency is there because this wasn't a great game for the Ducks. But uh, it, it really, you know, he's been the guy I think a lot of people have been hyped about for a long time, especially because of his start last year. Uh, and if the Ducks are going to score some more goals this year and get some depth scoring, he's going to be a guy that's going to lead the charge for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's been able to score at every level, too. That that quick spurt last year that he had his first NHL experience was really encouraging. I think of the young players, he feels like the guy who's got the best finishing ability. So I think, I think I'm expecting a lot out of him, I think, this season, or I was coming in coming into it, uh, especially with Kasha out now. I mean, I think if you're gonna if you're a Ducks fan and you're hoping that they can fight into the playoffs, you're gonna need one of those young guys now. I mean, he's not on IR yet, Kasha isn't, but uh, if he's out for an extended period of time or if he's got a concussion, which he's had problems with in the past, he might be out for a while. And you gotta hope at this point that one of those young guys can maybe get 15 or 20 goals. And I think that might be Comtois uh, if it does happen. Yeah, that's what we're hoping for. I think one of those guys needs to step up for the Ducks' offense. It's gonna move up from uh, dead last last year and move into hopefully the middle of the pack or at least somewhere around 20, 21, 22. They're going to, to need somebody like that to step up. Uh, but moving into the to the first uh, Vegas school of the game here, this is where Vegas really started to take over and where Mark Stone and his line started to get things going. Uh, his original shot hits the crossbar and it falls right behind John Gibson. And, and unfortunately for Cam Fowler, I don't know. He looked like he was trying to clear it, but at the same time, it looks like he just kind of lost his head a bit and threw it into the back of the net. I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he was trying to clear it here, but he actually ends up throwing it into his own net. Uh, a tough goal for the Ducks after scoring the first goal of the game, but uh, you, you, again, you can't get on Gibby for this one. The, the shot does beat him and hits the crossbar, but this one's a bit on, on Camp Valley, you'd have to say. Yeah, uh, watching the replays and everything, I think it might have been a combination of uh, like Fowler's stick hit the puck into the net, but he kind of it was cu- the direction of his blade was kind of redirected by Gibby's skate. So I think it was just a, a bad luck timing thing. If if he if Gibson hadn't moved or had moved earlier, either he would have knocked it into his own net, or if he hadn't moved as early, Fowler might have been able to clear that across the goal mouth instead of clearing it into the goal. Because if you look at the replay, it kind of looks like he's he doesn't quite get the follow through on the puck, and that ends up putting it at the angle it was, which is into the net. So uh, tough there for them. The thing that kind of the bad look that I that I kind of saw in that goal was the defending. Like three guys on uh, on Stone before he made that shot and then yep. just the bad luck. So it was, it, I mean, it, it, it kind of 
you were right, was part of a trend that kind of went on for the rest of the night of 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 uh, Las Vegas kind of moving quickly in the offensive zone, being like just being elusive, hard to cover, and the Ducks having a lot of breakdowns in the defensive end. Yeah, defensive coverage was an issue all night, and, and that was kind of expected when you don't have Lindholm and Manson in the lineup. And we talked about on a previous podcast how Lindholm and Manson have been criticized for bad play this year, but that's almost because Brandon Gooley just came back, and the Ducks really haven't had a second unit to roll out there against opposing teams' top players. Lindholm and Manson have been the guys that have been out there in every hard shift, and now you kind of see how much that you miss them in a game like this against you know, a back-to-back against one of the top teams in the league, against one of the best offenses in the league, where you've got some lapses into defensive coverage, and you kind of see that as well on the second goal for Vegas, where you get a fourth liner in William Carrier, who, who is a very good player in his own right. For, you know, he's not a horrible player; he's a, a hard-hitting player, and he, he does put up points on that fourth line for Vegas. But he outmuscles, I think, two or three Ducks players. Uh, falls over, makes a great pass over to Ryan Reeves, who is left wide open for to put a shot past John Gibson. Not a great look for the Ducks, not a great look for, I, I believe it was Michael Telzato and, and Eric Goodbranson who were out there for that goal as well. So it, it, it's a tough one because you don't want to give a goal up against the fourth line, but you've got two heavy guys to deal with in Carrier and Reeves. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the kind of the exposure that 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 pairing has. I mean, with Lindholm and and uh, sorry, Lindholm and Manson when they're when they're playing, they play against the top guys. But Vegas has two deep uh, two deep lines, and then this fourth line which we talked about earlier. So uh, there's really nowhere to hide. Good Branson and uh, Delzato when it comes to this game, and I think uh, that really was the start of a, <laughs> a difficult night for them. Uh, that pass that Carrier made though, falling. That also was kind of it's kind of difficult. You notice that back checker. Uh, I didn't see quite who it was on the right side who kind of lets Reeves go. Um, I think he was almost expecting that play to be over because uh, Carrier was on his way down and made that nice pass. So it just kind of shows you you gotta you gotta back check, stay on your man. Um, but that was a difficult call. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was fourth line versus fourth line out there because I'm looking at the replay and Derek Grant's out there with Carter Rowney. So uh, a tough assignment for them because. You know, you know, Derek Grant and Carter Rowney are, I think, are legitimate fourth liners and they're legitimate NHL players. Uh, but it, when you're going against, you know, not even just Reeves and Carrier, but Nicholas Waugh, who got his first start tonight of the season, he's a big kid too, and he plays some heavy hockey and gets the third goal of the game for the Vegas Golden Knights too. You mentioned it earlier on, a lucky bounce because it hits off Eric Goodbranson's skate and lands back on his stick, and I think that fools John Gibson a bit because he thinks the puck is going wide and it comes right back to Waugh who ends up throwing it past him. Uh, still not a great look for Adele Zotto and uh, Goodbranson, who kind of played him soft a bit, and, and you know maybe that's a lack of experience playing against him, but again, he's a big kid, and I think they got to play that a bit tighter, uh, and it, it you know, ends up being 3-1 Vegas off that play. Yeah, and, and seeing somebody like that split the D where he just kind of skates forward in between them without even doing a move, like a, a dangler or anything like that, you just kind of wonder what they were thinking like you you mentioned playing soft on the stick there's no shoulder under the body there's no they weren't even really in position to to play him physically one uh branson was behind him and delzada was kind of a little far to his right and you wonder how they get that far out of position uh before the play even started and i, I mean that kind of goes towards we'll talk I'll, I'll kind of bring it up a little bit more about the penalties and just the style of play the ducks have but uh it's it's what you, you deal with when you deal with this fast speedy team yeah, they, they had penalty issues, and you kind of foreshadowed that on Twitter where you're saying that the Ducks were on pace for six penalties in this game and how they've had an issue with penalties throughout this year. Uh, it's become a trend not just this season, but probably for at least 
you know, maybe even more than the last three to five seasons, the Ducks have had discipline issues, and, and it's kind of evolved past Randy Carlisle and into Dallas Aikens. But they end up getting a, a holding call from Brendan Gooley in this. They kill it off, and there wasn't a ton of high-quality chances from Vegas in this one. Uh, the rest of their power plays looked pretty impressive, but I think the Ducks did a good job of holding them off to at least keep it 3-1 uh, to one after the first. Nick Ritchie gets a chance near the end, where it was probably the Ducks' second-best chance of the period other than Ryan Getzlaff's goal, where he just can't tuck it past Marc-Andre Fleury. But all in all, not a great period for the Ducks. Outshot 17-5. to Shot attempts were 27-11 to for Vegas at 5-on-5. Five five. Scoring chances were 8-3. to And high danger chances were 6-2. to uh, Michael Delzato and Goodbranson, they didn't really look that great out there. They looked lost at times. And the Ducks were struggling to gain offensive zone pressure, which has been a problem all year. They've been kind of a team that flies by the seat of their pants. And, and they've been a high-event hockey team for most of the season. And that's kind of expected against a team who's been known for puck possession and, and you know, building play in the offensive zone in the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah, and I think uh, this is kind of where you want to start to get into the speed at which they play. They, every, a lot has been made about them playing a faster game, a more possession-focused, creative game. But that hasn't necessarily been from just outright speed and quickness like the Golden Knights have. There's a lot of, like the first goal the Ducks scored of the night, there's a lot of stretch passes coming from inside their defensive zone. Which and, and good first passes that enable you to, to break out with speed. And it's not like NHL players are that much faster than one another when it comes down to it. But when you're able to get a pass on the tape from the defensive zone through the neutral zone and kind of maintain that speed from a defender who's been able to retrieve the puck and kind of have composure with it, uh, that's how you're able to get a fast attack and that creative kind of off-the-rush type of hockey. The problem tonight was that they were just being so aggressively forechecked by the Ducks that they didn't the, the defenders in the center didn't have time to pick up that puck behind the net, look for that great first pass, and start the rush quickly. And that kind of snowballs. It snowballs from the defensive zone into the offensive zone and, and results in a lot of dump and chase, which for the Ducks was hard to retrieve that puck in the in the Golden Knights offensive zone. So it kind of it's a it's a, a waterfall effect there uh, where you start off in your defensive zone, you can't really generate any offense, which I think was a problem most of the game. Yeah, and, and that continued into the second period too because the Ducks didn't have a shot for the first five minutes. I think they got a pretty good chance where Troy Terry has been showing this, and, and I didn't notice this from him when he was playing in, in Denver and when he was playing with uh, the U.S. national team either. He, his puck protection is a lot better than his size comes off as, and you've seen that, I guess, in the last three games more so where he's had at least one or two chances where he's used that to his advantage to set up a play, uh, and he does in this one to set up Max Jones, but unfortunately Max Jones gets himself in a good scoring position. It was always going to be a tough shot because he would have had to beat uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, I think, blocker side, top right, the top left corner, that was the only spot available. Uh, he completely airmails it and, and sends it over the net. But I like what I'm seeing from Troy Terry in that that sense because he's got some great balance. He's got a decent reach for not being a big guy, and he's been using that to his advantage. Just the points haven't come up. But if he keeps doing that and he keeps setting up plays like that, eventually he's either, the whoever he's setting up is going to put one in the back of the net. Yeah, we spoke about this a little bit on. Uh, uh, I spoke about it with Kent on our podcast. That uh, something I'm very in, uh, impressed with Terry about both in the offense when he's making when he's on the rush protecting the puck and and dishing it off to his teammates, but also on the forecheck. He's got such a good stick and such good body position for someone his size that he really he really uses it to his advantage. I I, I 
use an example in one of the articles I wrote about a for, his forechecking ability where he might not be in the best physical position to steal the puck on the forecheck, but he finds a way to get there uh, in a very quick way. And it, 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 that goes along with having a good stick, both when you're trying to steal the puck and when you're trying to set up your teammates and protect the puck from the opponent. He just He's just very, uh, he's very good that way, and I, I think that's what's enabled him to kind of make a name for himself early or at least not make a name for himself isn't the right phrase but like to to stand out a little bit when he's got the puck yeah it's something that i've been impressed with him because i like i said i haven't seen that from him coming up and and it's nice to see that you don't really expect a new facet of, of a player's game to kind of develop at the nhl level especially a guy who isn't that big and you know, maybe if he, you know, McKinnon is a guy, kind of a guy that I, I not liken Troy Terry to, but that development in, because McKinnon came into the league similar to Troy Terry, a lanky kid, a smaller kid, and then, you know, three or four seasons into his development, you look at Nathan McKinnon now, he, he's nowhere near the, the same type of player who came to the league, just the size and the, and, and the muscle that he's been put on, and I think, I don't know if Troy Terry is going to be able to get that big as Nathan McKinnon is, because I, I believe McKinnon is, is uh, much taller than, than Troy Terry is. But just that reach and that uh, that ability to protect the puck is something Nathan McKinnon has always had since he entered the NHL and something he didn't really have in junior. So it's nice to see Troy Terry come out and, and, and put that uh, development on and show that, you know, not even though the points aren't coming, he's still working hard and he's still relentless on the forecheck. Uh, yeah, let's get to the second or what would have been the, the Golden Knights fourth goal of the game, uh, but it ends up getting denied. Uh, Eakin feeds Marshall show from behind the net and his one timer clearly beats John Gibson hits the crossbar and then hits the opposite post and goes out. I thought this was in originally. I thought, you know, this is a power play goal, beautiful setup from uh, Eakin to Marshall show uh, ducks and John Gibson get pretty lucky on this play though. Yeah, absolutely. And you saw Gabranson on the penalty kill, which uh, that's an issue in and of itself, uh, him being back there instead of Manson or Lindholm. Uh, the puck originates from behind the net, which is difficult uh, a difficult place to defend when you're on the penalty kill because obviously you don't want to chase a player back there who's got possession of the puck. Uh, uh, maybe a little bit more on uh, whoever was defending up there out high, uh, not paying attention to the point man and uh, kind of sneaking in. But the Ducks caught a break there. Not that it helped them any during the game, but uh, a two-poster and out. Um, I'm sure Gibson wished those posts were a little bigger throughout the game, but he he did have a, a good game, and he probably just like, oh, man, I wish I had a few more of those. Yeah, Gibby didn't have a bad game, to be honest. And no. I think he was left hung out to dry when you look at the shot totals getting dangerously close to 50 is, is something we're used to seeing last year where John Gibson would end up finishing with 44 saves, but the Ducks would still, you know, end up losing by three or four goals. It's it's a tough one for him, and, and obviously, you know, Vegas would get a power play goal on the same power play where that goal was denied, where uh, Larson and, and Holzer kind of get torn apart from some great passing from the Vegas Golden Knights, which we've kind of become accustomed to over the last couple of years. Uh, and it's William Carlson, the former Duck, who ends up making the pay and, and beating John Gibson. But uh, this this passing play on the power play especially is something that Vegas has kind of had a hallmark for since really their inaugural season where they've just had this chemistry. And now you had Mark Stone into the mix, too, who was again involved in this play. Uh, just a, a great goal for them and, and you know a tough outing for Larson and Holzer, who... You know they've they've kind of had a difficult task all year because I you know I I love Kribinian Holter and I love the heart that he shows in this game but he he's more a seventh or eighth defenseman and it's tough being put out there and being asked to put on the penalty kill against a top unit like that. 
Yeah, and, and really, no matter who's killing that penalty, that type of passing makes it very difficult. <laughs> uh, just, I mean, the behind-the-back pass from, I think it was uh, Smith to uh, to Carlson, that, like, how do you defend that? I mean, it, it's just, it, it's pretty remarkable, the, the play that they made. And, yeah, maybe Manson and Lindholm uh, would have had a little more success if they were out there Uh Having those two, the bottom pair of guys, kind of out there trying to kill a penalty is is tough. But that's been a problem for a few seasons now. Injuries with the Ducks early on, so uh, hopefully one day that'll end. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, yeah, it's it's tough because you look at I think it was only three years ago that the pairings they were able to put out in the playoffs. When you think of Lindholm and Manson, Fowler, Theodore, Montour, you know, the guys that were out there, and and, and even Votnin as well, and and now you know at least 50% of those guys are gone and Theodore we, we saw tonight against Vegas Montour is now in, in Buffalo Votnin's now in, in New Jersey and the Ducks are you know seeing dividends paid and, and some of the players they have in the lineup obviously Adam Henrique is having a great start to the season for the Ducks but it, it's tough when you look at it now and you've got you know a desperation move to get Eric Branson and, and you've got Michael Delzato playing you know, top four minutes and and Caribbean Holzer has become a regular this year because the Ducks just don't have any options on the right side it's tough. It's tough to look at. The Ducks would get another good chance in the second period. Troy Terry, again, who we've talked about with his puck protection, he uses it again on this play to kind of fend off the Golden Knights defender, and he ends up throwing a puck on that that almost beats Marc-Andre Fleury five-hole. He actually just covers up in the last couple seconds to stand strong, but I liked Troy Terry's game in this one, and it's not something I've been able to say all year, but I think the last couple of games he's been improving, and again, he uses that reach and that puck protection that kind of sneaks up on some players and gets one of the Ducks' best chances of the game. Yeah, and also his balance. I mean, you could see him, he's getting the business from that uh, the Golden Knights defender, and he he stays basically on his feet until he gets that shot off, which is another underrated thing about his game. He's a, he's a very good skater, and Fleury, obviously, with the, the nice save at the end there. But uh, besides Terry, I mean, Terry and Getzlav were the pretty much the two, and, and Gibson were the standout players in that game, even in such a lopsided loss. Yeah, and I think, the way Ryan Getzlaff's look, I criticized him a little bit earlier on in the season, maybe a bit unfairly because he's had uh, less ice time this year for not contributing, and the Ducks were winning games without him contributing. Uh, he's really stepped it up in the last few games, and and with you know some of the younger players not getting things going, and I guess you could say Ricard Raquel and Jakob Silver cooling down slightly. Getzlaff has stepped up and, and really taken taken control of the Ducks' offense, which has been kind of minimal barring the the game against the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, let's sum up that second period as much as we can. Uh, defensive coverage has been tough in this game. Knights players, they routine. I don't know if you found this. I think it was three or four plays in the second period alone where Golden Knights players found themselves behind Ducks defense and had a two-on-one uh, against John Gibson. But it was after it wasn't on a rush. It was sustained pressure from the Golden Knights in the offensive zone. And I think William Carlson found his way, and he snuck behind uh, Jakob Larson at one point. And I think Statsny snuck behind Kerbini and Holzer, and they were just area passes in behind the Ducks' defense where uh, Golden Knights players were finding space all night. That That's clearly the Ducks missing Hampus Lindholm and Josh Manson and, get, and guys getting more minutes than they're, they're accustomed to against top pairings. 
Absolutely, because especially when you're when you're a top pair defenseman in the NHL, you're used to playing against the the best talent and the opponents. And those 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 talented players move around a lot. It's not the structure and the 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 limited kind of game that the bottom pairing lines have. So like guys like Crosby and Eichel and 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 guys like the top two lines in the Golden Knights, they're moving even when they're not on the rush. They're constantly moving around, and it's hard to keep track of them when you're not used to that defending that type of play. That's how. Uh, even like I said, like you said, even when they're not coming off the rush, that's how they can kind of sneak behind the defenders because all of a sudden they're not where they were and lo and behold, they're right behind you. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like trying to, I don't know if I'm using this phrase right, but trying to catch a, uh, uh, trying to like catch a, f- I'm not even going to use it. Never mind. I'm going to butcher <laughs> that one. <laughs> Feel free to light me up on Twitter for not being able to speak English. But uh, yeah, it's just difficult when they're when they're so creative and they move around the yeah. offensive zone so quickly to keep track of them when you're not used to defending that type of game. Yeah, exactly. And and again, that like we said, you look at uh, Delzato and and Goodbranson, who are primarily guys you would see on a third pairing for most teams getting second pairing minutes, which a lot of the time that means they're facing the Golden Knights first or second line uh, on tough shifts. That's something you're going to get. And again, the same goes for Larson and Holtz, who saw an increase in minutes tonight because... You're not going to throw Gooley and Fowler out there every time you can get there. They're not Lindholm and Manson, and and they're they're you know them themselves this season aren't used to facing the top pairing on every shift. So it, it, you knew that was kind of going to come after hearing that Lindholm was going to miss this game and and, and what a loss it was for the Ducks. Uh, they entered the third period surprisingly well. I thought they were going to come in and be demoralized, especially you know they're tired. They they had just won five two yesterday. The energy wasn't there. They were getting outshot. 32 to 10 at that point but for the first couple minutes they came on energized and max jones almost uh, cut the lead he hit the post uh, but from there on out it was a penalty trouble that kind of deflated the ducks in this game getzlaff goes off for interference power play goal for the golden knights with patch ready feeds Stastny across the ice for a tap-in that's a tough one sam Steele takes a penalty for tripping and the golden knights get some good chances on that one like the energy just kind of sapped away with those first two penalties from the ducks yeah, and the obvious part is that when you're killing penalties, I mean, it, it messes up the line combinations. Some players are more tired than others because they spend a lot of time on the ice killing penalties, and it just it kind of messes up the whole flow of the game, uh, especially for offensive players who are maybe not penalty killers but but scorers, and they are now they're used to playing every couple of minutes, and now they're sitting on the bench for extended periods of time during the penalty kill. It, it really messes up the kind of the flow of the entire game, and I guess it would be kind of a good time to get in it with the penalty problems. That I think the problem the Ducks have that they've had for a long time, uh, and it's not. I don't think it's just a Carlisle problem. It may be started with him, but um, the fact that they, they don't, they're not inherently not a speedy team, and just like you kind of have to work on attacking faster and playing a faster, more possession brand of offense. You also have to work on defending of that, that type of game. And they've struggled to do that for the last two seasons. And against a team like the Golden Knights, this is why I tweeted what I tweeted before. You just knew that those type that type of speed was going to pull Ducks players out of position and they were going to get a lot of hooking, interference, holding penalties, tr- obstruction penalties to try to make up that kind of that difference, that that attacking speed that the that the Golden Knights just inherently have. And and you saw that in a few other games uh, this season where it's not a lot of it's not interference, it's not roughing or sorry, it's not roughing, it's not a lot of fighting penalties, it's not it's not the kind of rough and tumble penalty. It's the positional penalties that you get from making up for a mistake or being being in the wrong spot, not being between your the opponent and the goal. So that's 
that's kind of, I mean, that's why I tweeted what I tweeted. And I, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's, I didn't notice something that other people haven't noticed. It's just like it's, they're playing a fast team. They're going to get a lot of hooking and a lot of obstruction penalties. Yeah, and despite being faster than they were last year, it's not like they're all of a sudden a fast team when you compare them to some of the fastest teams in the league. You know, last year we all kind of got fooled at the beginning of the season where Bob Murray and Randy Kyle both said that they're going to play faster hockey and that things were going to be better for them. Uh, that obviously wasn't the case on, on how things went for last season. Uh, and, and it's not like things are going to take a drastic step forward this year with the Ducks having largely the same roster and obviously with some significant injuries. When you look, you know, Andre Cash is one of the best play drivers the Ducks have and you don't have him, you lose some speed there. And then having, you know, Lindholm and Manson out, you lose some transition from the blue line as well, which is going to cut the speed down. So that that was the writing on the wall for the Ducks that they were going to take some more penalties in this game, especially when you're going up against, uh, you know, I would argue the Golden Knights are one of the fastest teams in the league when it comes to passing and skating ability as well. So it's tough. It's tough. You you kind of felt like it it was going to happen in this game. I mean, you saw it on another team. Just be quick. Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux the other day saying, telling the media, I can't make my, (laughs) I can't make my players faster or something (laughs) like that. It's like, I don't think that Dallas Eakins would, have the uh, uh, the lack of foresight to say that, and and the, and the Ducks aren't necessarily a slow team. They're just taking, they're just adjusting to that new speed of the NHL on both sides, and they're having some growing pains. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's the perfect way to put it. Is they're having some growing pains, and games like these are going to happen. And and I would rather a game like this happen against a team like the Golden Knights rather than a team like the Ottawa Senators or the Detroit Red Wings or a team who are struggling this year. I would rather it be against one of the best teams in the NHL and one of the best teams in the Western Conference who have routinely been a struggle for the Ducks because of their speed. Like we've seen this before. It's not like it's new that the Golden Knights have beat up at the Ducks, especially in T-Mobile Arena, which is a historically a tough place to play for for not for you know for all teams not just the ducks so it's one of those games where you look at it and the ducks haven't played even in their losses they haven't played too many bad games this year you look at boston they played a pretty good game there they lost to calgary where they got beat by camp talbot the last two losses they had were probably the two bad games that they've played this year and uh and then you look at it you know i get a fast team i get like colorado with rest the ducks were able to play a pretty good game against colorado avalanche as well so there's improvement there. You can see it. There's always going to be games like this. You know, the Ducks are still a young team, and a team like you said that are adjusting to a new style of play. And you're going to come up against a team who's been playing the same way since they came into the league. There's going to be these types of games. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, especially after a long road trip or at the end of a long road trip and the second of back to back, like we talked about at the beginning. It's just a tough. Uh, it's a tough situation to be in. But uh, I mean, that's why you're in the NHL. You don't make excuses and I don't think they are and they're going to they're going to play with the up against Winnipeg at home uh in a couple days so I think that's going to be I think you're maybe you'll the, the way you saw Las Vegas come out tonight is how you'll see the Ducks come out against Winnipeg and Winnipeg has a notoriously weak defense I mean they've traded Truba and uh or Truba signed I don't remember I think they I don't remember if he signed yeah, they, they, they traded him as an RFA to the Rangers and then he signed yeah. to the Rangers so, yeah. yeah they and lost so, him and they like Bufflin is still He's still MIA. If he's making a decision, if he's going to ever play again, and then Tyler Myers, who's not a big piece of their blue line, but when you look at who else they lost, that's a huge loss. And it's it's almost a worse situation than the Ducks are in right now, yeah, because the Ducks are dealing with injuries and and fully healthy. You've still got four guys who are, are capable at you know playing top four minutes in in Lindholm and Fowler and Gooley and uh, and Manson. But uh, for Winnipeg, it's it's Josh Morrissey's show, and that and that's pretty much it with the guys that they're playing there. 
Yeah, yeah, it's going to be, I think, a good opportunity for the Ducks to get back on track, uh, get their offense back on track, and, uh, and hopefully their power play maybe get a, a couple. I mean, they only had one power play or two this whole game, uh, and maybe get another power play goal because that was starting to heat up a little bit. Um, but I, I think that uh, you just you just have to hope that that Winnipeg game is, is a, is a bounce-back game, obviously. I mean, obviously you hope that for the Ducks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. The last play we have, because we got to talk about it, because it was the Ducks' goal, and uh, Troy Terry continued his strong game. He strips the puck away from a Golden Knights player, and he feeds Adam Henrique with a nice pass, and, and Henrique uh, continues his hard start to the season, scores his team-leading sixth goal of the year, which I don't think anybody would have expected. Uh, I, I think a lot of it's come from the fact, especially early on, that he ended up getting placed with uh, Raquel and Silverberg out of just injury issues and guys getting sent down because Sam Steele was the guy who was pegged with them at the start of the season, and that was supposed to be one of the Ducks' most intriguing lines this year, and then Sam Steele gets injured, so Isaac Lindstrom goes in and plays with them. And then he gets sent down, and then Adam Henrique ends up being the guy who steps in there and becomes the benefactor and, and had five goals going into this game. I believe he started the night with Henrique uh, or with Raquel and Silverberg. At, at this point, I think he had been moved off because they shuffled lines a bit. But he finds himself with Troy Terry, makes a nice move, and, and scores. I'd like to see those guys play together more often because I think they both look pretty good tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they make a decent or a pretty good uh, two-way combo or two-way, two, two-thirds of a good uh, two-way line because uh, like we talked about with uh, with Terry earlier, he's a pretty good four-checker. He's smart with his body and his stick. He stripped the puck away from the Golden Knight defender to start this play. And then he made a nice pass. They're talking about it on the broadcast through the triangle of the Golden Knight defender to a wide open Adam Henrique who just threaded it between Marc-Andre Fleury's legs. So it was. Uh, it looks like they, that combination could have some chemistry, and I think uh, if you can get them both kind of, I mean, Henrique is already going, but if, if you can get Terry going with that chemistry from Henrique, I think that's, uh, that's, a, good, uh, that's a good combination, especially because Henrique is so, uh, he's also effective in the defensive zone, so maybe uh, Terry can get away with a, 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 little, a couple more mistakes back there that are going to happen from being a young player with uh, Henrique back there to kind of make up for it. Yeah, I think that's one thing that uh, we've kind of passed on uh, as Ducks fans over this season so far and, and why the offense hasn't been going. And, and a lot of that has to do with chemistry, with, with the Ducks rolling with a lot of different lines than they rolled with last year, and, and pretty much nothing worked at all last year. And yeah, you've got uh, Adam Henrique and Raquel and Silverberg are working really well together, but the Ducks really haven't found that chemistry uh, in the other two lines yet. And you know, we look at a team, a perfect example tonight, in the Vegas Golden Knights who have two lines who've played together for, you know, uh, basically the last two seasons and, and so far in this year and they're just used to playing together and the chemistry is there despite adding Mark Stone halfway through last year he's seamlessly fit on a line with Max Pacioretty as well so the Ducks need to find that chemistry and I think when that comes and guys start getting used to playing with each other and, and fitting in a new system I think the goals are going to come at that point you just have to get there and I, I think it's been nice and, and surprising that they found that one line that seems to work together to start the year it's just comes now finding you know the second line and the third line that are going to have some chemistry and that you can at least have two guys who you can play together it's, it's difficult to find three lines you're going to keep together all year but obviously due to injuries and sometimes it just doesn't work out and they get hot for a little bit but the ducks need to to be able to find two lines that have that chemistry and that's just going to take time you know maybe 20 or 30 games down the road hopefully by then they have it figured out but it takes some time especially with a new system a new coach and everything 
Yeah, and Eakin said some encouraging words about that uh, uh, probably about a week or a week and a half ago. It was more referencing their uh, their struggling power play, but I think it goes like like you mentioned for for really the whole team on offense is that you you need to keep guys together for a while to de- to develop that chemistry and to panic and start shuffling the power play unit around and the lines around on a regular basis instead of maybe in a game where you're struggling to create anything like today. Uh, that that. Doesn't I mean that gets in the way of creating chemistry? So I think Eakins is going to be patient uh, with his forwards and and give them a chance to 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 play together on a night to night basis. And if there's a game like tonight where they need some sort of spark, maybe he might change things around. But for the most part, I think he's going to be uh, he's going to be methodical about it. Well, that finishes it up for this game. The Ducks lose five two. Uh, if John Gibson wasn't in it tonight, this could have been a lot worse. Uh, there was some very very good saves. I think he uh, at that two-minute mark of the third period with the remaining. He makes a great save on Jonathan Marshall's show on a one-timer where he's still giving that effort at the end of this game. I mean, you're a goaltender. At any point, you don't want it to get much worse than it was going in this game for him. But 49 shots for the Vegas Golden Knights, 15 for the Ducks tonight. Just not a night for the Ducks' offense or for really for their defense to, to that matter. John Gibson, I think, was one of the Ducks' best players if you're going to throw Brian Getzlaff and, and Troy Terry in there as well. And he, and he kept them in this one. Uh, they'll forget about this one, and you already mentioned it, going into the uh, game again on Tuesday against uh, the Winnipeg Jets. Any positives you can draw from this game at all? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the first positive, nobody got injured, I think. Yeah. That's the, that's the <laughs> best one. I mean, uh, people, uh, people get very testy when uh, this is mentioned, but uh, the fact that Gibson didn't get injured is, is definitely the first start. I'm not saying he's injury prone. He isn't, but I mean, you kind of see the type of the type of uh, assault that he's under, and and you're you're just happy that he came out in one piece. Uh, probably tired. Maybe we'll see Tuesday, but uh, uh, that's I mean the best silver lining you can take out of it. And then Getzlav, I think, scoring that first goal, continuing to be to take it upon himself to shoot more, to score more rather than to pass. And then Troy Terry, like we mentioned, Troy Terry's uh, showcasing some of his stick skills and his offensive skills getting on the board. And I guess the, the last thing would be young guys continuing to, uh, uh, or second to last thing, young guys continuing to put up points, even if it's in a losing effort. And then last but not least, you mentioned them coming out a little stronger in the third. I think that's important. You've seen them doing that in a lot of games, even that they've lost. They come out, they fight hard at the last period. They don't just kind of fold and roll over and get stomped like it happened a couple times last year so that those would be my takeaways yeah i i think you you look at the takeaways and the positives they come in net and they come up front this game it, it was always going to be hard to have positives on the on the blue line and you know you can look at it and, and draw some negatives from it but you know that's not going to be the case for the ducks this year when you look at who they were rolling out that this is a, simply due to the fact they had injuries going on a back-to-back against a tough team you know everything kind of aligned for it to be a very difficult game for the ducks Let's talk about their newest addition to the blue line. Uh, Eric Branson comes over for Andreas Martinson. I believe it was a seventh-round pick as well that got sent back uh, to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, apparently a guy that uh, Bob Murray's been looking at for a very long time. I, I don't hate it because right now, even with Manson in the line, the right-hand shot depth is Manson, and it drops all the way off through Caribbean Holter, and you've got uh, Yanni Hockenpah and Chris Weidman and Hunter Drew in the AHL, so there's not much depth there. The only issue I think I have with it is the fact that Goodbranson makes $4 million per year and he has one more year on his contract. So it's not like he is, we're going to bring him in for now because of injuries and then we'll decide at the end of the year. No, you've got to have this guy now for the rest of this year and for next year. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, luckily, the price—I mean, the salary cap price is higher than you'd like, but the price to get him wasn't that high, especially because I didn't realize this. He was the third overall pick in 2010 behind yeah. Taylor Hall and Tyler Sagan. That that blew my mind. I was like, wow. I mean, talk about a drop off from there, or not a drop off, because there were some guys behind him that should have, by now, with for- hindsight, would have gone way ahead of him. But uh, third overall pick in 2010. He's not obviously not an offensive guy. He's he's I want to say he's like 0.13 points per game in his for his career. Uh, he's physical, which is a good thing. He can he, you saw against Colorado. He's he's willing to use the body. Uh, he's I think last season, according to Fox Sports, he was the 14th ranked NHL defenseman in hits. So that's one thing that's kind of important. I mean, replacing Manson now, not that he's the perfect replacement. Obviously, we saw tonight for a top pairing defenseman, but. That's one of the things that Man- that Manson brings that Good Branson also brings. So that physicality, obviously the right-handed shot as well. Uh, he Manson typically goes about two, or according to last season, about two more minutes uh, average time on ice per night. So obviously he's not the top pairing defenseman like Manson is, and I think overall uh, the price wasn't too steep. But you saw uh, you you don't need him playing. Uh, second, even second pairing minutes. You, you want him on the third pair, and then he'd be in a pretty good spot. Yeah, I don't mind it at all for this year because I think he is better than Corbinian Holzer. I think he is a solid sixth guy. You know, the price for him to be a sixth guy is a little bit high, but you can kind of have that as a sunk cost because the Ducks aren't going to be in a cap issue this year. They're not. They're not going to be looking to add too much at the deadline. That's going to hurt them cap wise. Like. That you know, all that considered, that's fine. And I think if you're going to roll with uh, everybody healthy, Lindholm and Manson, Gooley and Fowler, and let's say Larson and Goodbranson, that's a little bit of a step forward. Then you know you have maybe Del Zotto as your seven or Holzer as your eight, and and you can kind of have those guys scratched and and throw them in when necessary. So that that's all fine. I think that that that's not too bad. I think it is when you move into next year and the Corey Perry buyout hit gets a little bit bigger, and then you know hopefully by that point Josh Maher has made some steps forward and and looking to get a shot in the NHL. And same with Hunter Drew and some and Simon Benoit has had a, a good go in the AHL so far. Those are guys I think that are going to get blocked potentially next year because you still have Eric Goodbranson and, and obviously you know at that point they can make a decision on on Cabernet Holzer and uh, Michael Delzato but the cap hit gets a little bit tighter it squeezes tighter you might not be able to add some guys in we'll come I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it but that's the only part I don't like about it you know you know Andreas losing Andreas Martins in a seven round pick that's not a big deal the, the price wasn't too big to pay I think it's just having that block in the roster next year is, is something that's going to be tough yeah and then also i mean this gives me an ice cream headache bringing this up but the rfas these young players steel terry uh comtois and uh, uh lundestrom i it's i mean the ice cream headache part is like how many games they played already and whether like what level of rfa they're going to be and what year are they coming up are any of them coming up next year for rfa status or is it two years from now let me check because i had i had cap friendly open for good branson so RFA's at the end of this year. So Troy Terry has to uh, sign at the end of this year. And then Max Jones, Sam Steele, Maxim Comtois would be at the end of next year. But that w- at the end of 2020-2021, uh, which would not be a problem because Eric Goodbranson would be an unrestricted free agent at this point. Uh, Jakob Larson and Brandon Gooley and Troy Terry are the three guys who have to sign at the end of this year. And I guess Devin Shore... Somehow he's still an RFA, so if you want to throw him in there as well, he'd also have to be a guy who'd have to sign. Yeah, so I guess I guess you're hoping. I mean, you're obviously hoping Terry 
plays well. But uh, I mean, if that becomes a problem where he he deserves a huge contract, then uh, yeah, so the the Gabranson trade uh, might be a regret when you look back on it. Same thing with Gooley, actually. Uh, I like the way he's played this year. I think he's got a lot of upside. So maybe it's a I, this is very pre uh, <laughs> kind of too early to talk about it, but. Um, I mean, if he if he continues to play well, he didn't. I mean, he didn't really stick out that that much that uh, tonight. But uh, he might be another guy who who becomes a little more expensive uh, in the off season. So yeah, I I, I feel you with the Gabranson uh, questioning for next year. One guy we, we've already talked about the loss of Josh Manson and what that means for the Ducks on the, on defense. The, the the one I'm a little bit more concerned with because we haven't heard too much about it other than you know it's an upper body injury and we and everybody's seen the slow mo now of, of Andre Kasher running into Rupe Hints uh, concerns of another concussion for for Andre Kasher and what that could mean not just for this season but for his NHL career in general I think this is probably if it is a concussion would be his third or fourth concussion over the last couple seasons for him not great when you look at his career moving forward what is that concern for the Ducks and how big of a loss would Andre Kasser be not just this season but moving forward I mean he a huge loss uh he's the one guy I've always for a long time thought and this uh, isn't really mind-blowing either the Ducks need a sniper they need someone who can score who's willing to shoot who can who can set up uh plays in the offensive zone get lots of and and, and Kasha has been the one young player besides Ricard Raquel, who's been able to show, and Raquel's not that young anymore, but to be able to show that type of offensive ability on a consistent basis. And if you if you lose Kasha for his career, I mean, that's the that's the biggest, probably the biggest ever what if, or one of the biggest ever what ifs in, uh, amongst the Young Ducks players that kind of didn't make it or were traded. So um, Kasha, yeah, you hate to see him getting potentially another concussion. Uh, the one positive kind of, thing you can say about it is it's not always a death I mean this isn't I don't want to use this word literally it's not a death sentence for a hockey career it's it's bad it's it makes you question whether you want to play you would think because of the whole CTE risk but Bergeron Patrice Bergeron way back when was absolutely obliterated had missed almost an entire season with a concussion has had a couple more since and was able to play Crosby same yeah. thing has had a few concussions early in his career has continued to play so you hope that it goes that way for Kasha if indeed he does have a concussion concussion um but you would hate to lose him going forward I, I, and the contract i forgot he signed last offseason correct yeah uh, i'll double check again because i have cap friendly open here uh, andre cash is signed until 2021 2022 for 2.6 million dollars so he's 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 making nothing compared to the impact that he provides to this ducks team right now yeah, especially our, our conversation about Goodbranson getting paid so much. I mean, he's one of the guys that counteracts that. He, he's, he can be a if he's able to break out offensively, he can be a very uh, one of the better contracts the Ducks have. So uh, you really want to see him get back and shake off the the concussion injury problems that he's had early in his career. Yeah, and that's saying something considering Ricard Raquel only makes uh, under three point eight million dollars right now for the next three seasons, and, and I think Andre Kasha this year. He shot the puck a lot. He has 26 shots through 11 games, which we're used to. The puck hasn't really found the back of the net for him, but you think you would assume that's going to come with the way he contributes to the play and the way he drives play. What I've really liked is you've seen an uptick in not just his ability to get up the ice and, and, and have controlled entries into the offensive zone, just his playmaking ability. It seemed like every game he was in this year, he was setting up three or four good chances in the offensive zone, which is, I guess, not to say it's something we hadn't seen from Andre Kasha before, but on a consistent basis, it was 
Audric Asher was out there just, and somebody would set him up for a shot and 33% of the time would be in the back of the net. That's just seemed to be the case for him, but he's really not changed his game, but taken on a different role for the Ducks and, and being that distributor, which was really nice to see. It was really refreshing to see him have that other you know asset to his game, which made his play even more valuable to the Ducks considering he could flip from playmaker to goal scorer and still drive play at an elite level. Uh, he's a, a massive, massive loss to the Ducks if it's for any prolonged period of time. Hopefully he's back. It's never a good thing when you don't hear anything because it all you always have those worries of concussions. But I, I, I do think when people hear concussion and multiple concussions, especially as Ducks fans, a lot of us kind of go back to Paul Correa and how his career ended so early because of concussions. A lot of people go and they reference Mario Lemieux too, but then you have to bring up those recent ones, like you said, and Patrice Bergeron and Sidney Crosby and how far the game has come on that side and, and dealing with injuries and, and how guys are able to get back and, and still have regular and productive NHL careers. Uh, I, I don't think by any means this is the end for Andre Cassie, even if it is another concussion, I think the way that uh, medicine and just dealing with injuries has evolved in hockey that uh, he'll play hockey again I'm just hoping he can come back and be productive early this season because the Ducks are going to need him with the way their offense is produced he has been a guy other than Henrik Raquel and Silverberg that has really contributed and drove play for the Ducks yeah absolutely agreed there and uh, yeah the final thing about him is you don't want to see him kind of change the way he plays he's he's kind of physical he he uh, he, he gets into the corners and he he hits people and uh, this first this thought if this was a concussion this most recent concussion uh, or injury was kind of a freak accident it, it didn't really look it wasn't like him going into the corner or being in front of the net taking a shoulder to the jar or something like that it was a, it was kind of a collision that that neither player was expecting so um you kind of hope that if he if he does continue to play, he doesn't change the style of play that he has because I think that's vital for how productive he is. Yeah, he he the way he plays now is just a hard you know end to end style of play, and he needs that to continue to be productive. That that's why he's one of the the best uh, players the Ducks have up front and entering the the opposing zone with a controlled entry. Just the way he plays is is why he's so effective for the Ducks. Uh, let's move now. We got a. About five minutes until we hit an hour, so let's move into some of the fan questions we have. Uh, a lot of them are in response to tonight's game. Uh, some people just saying, I want to cry. Some people asking what happened. Uh, but uh, you know, more in the, the questions we can actually answer, uh, Maverick said, are we just matching the play with other teams? So are we not really trying to drive the play? Are we just letting other teams dictate the play and then coming up to the play and just trying to match that and not really trying to dictate play themselves? That's an interesting question. I mean, it's not, I don't know if it's necessarily like a conscious decision that you make. I think it's, it, it, it comes in with preparation and, and, uh, aggression and, and fatigue, obviously like this one like we've mentioned a thousand times was the second game of a back to back. So, uh, you want to obviously like drive play and, and take it to the other team, but it's, it's kind of a, I mean, it, to me, it seems like kind of a random thing. It's a, a you 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 work on it. I mean, I think you, you talk about it in the locker room. You obviously you want to score first and everything, but uh, it, I don't know. What's your opinion on that? That's kind of a hard. It's kind of a yeah, tough. It's one. a hard question. Yeah, it, it's something people have criticized the Ducks for in the past. If I, I have to remember, in some of the questions we've got before, is it was more so the question we used to get was do the Ducks play harder against good teams and then not show up against bad teams? That seemed to be something that we did a question we'd get over the last couple of years for the Ducks. And, and that's something that's changed. But 
I wouldn't say the Ducks are just matching the play with other teams. And if you you can't really use this game as an example of that, like we've already mentioned, it was a back-to-back against one of the best teams in the league. I think if you're coming into a back-to-back, sometimes all you can hope for is to match the intensity and the momentum from a team that's had two days off and is one of the fastest teams in the league. Uh, And then you look at, you know, with rest, what the Ducks were able to do against Colorado. So I don't think on the season as a whole, they're trying to match the play with other teams. Uh, That might have been the case in this game. And that's kind of expected in a back-to-back. I, I don't think it's something that we're going to see that often from the Ducks because I, I generally like what they've done so far this year. I think they have tried to dictate play themselves. They are a high-event team, and, and with that comes mistakes in your own zone. But I don't think you can be a high-event team and match the play of other opposing teams. At that point, you're a team who likes to trap and sit back defensively and then try and generate offensive zone pressure by cycling the puck. And I don't think the Ducks are that team this year. Yeah, and I guess one one thing I will say about that question, what I one thing I would have liked to have seen a little more today that you saw from from Richie and Getzlaff is more physicality. I mean, if you're if you don't have the legs to do that high flying offensive type of game, then you need to go into the corners and 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 kind of grind it out and hit people and make them not want to be uh, not want to go back there and retrieve the puck when you dump it in. And and that physicality is kind of a way you can you can take it to an opposing team without trying to skate it down their throat. So uh, that's. I, yeah, I think you could you could on a night like this you could have seen a little more physicality and and I think in general and missing Josh Manson was one of those things that kind of took away from that but that's that I guess that's true. I think this question's pair of a few because I believe you wrote an article about this and John Gibson's usage this year and how they should use Ryan Miller more. Uh, we had a question from Keith on Instagram. He said in, it's Gibson's net, but are there any thoughts about playing Ryan Miller a bit more down the road? Absolutely. I play him for sure, play him in, uh, against Winnipeg on Tuesday. I think uh, obviously John Gibson is one of the, is I think one of the best goalies in the NHL, but you can't, you can't have him out there getting 47 shots a night against him or even 33, 34. You, you need to rest him. And, and even though Ryan Miller is, is getting up there in age, he's shown nothing but an ability to compete and, and, and win games for the Ducks as well. So I think you give him a chance to play against Winnipeg. I'd like to see him play a couple more games every every couple of weeks rather than just the I think we've really seen about one a week since the season started uh, obviously every second game of a back-to-back he played the first game he played yesterday against Colorado so he played the first game but uh, I do think they should play Miller more and and not it's not any fault of John Gibson it's a, it's really a, a, a conservation thing if, if you are in the fight towards the end of the season the playoff spot you need you need a arrested goalie that's been proven in a lot of uh, a lot of article not proven but um, suggested that the numbers show that a lot of articles and studies that have been published uh, in the playoffs and at the end of the season uh, so I totally put uh, Ryan Miller in the goal uh, on a more regular basis than he's playing now. Yeah, one thing we brought up, I think it was uh, after the Carolina game, is last year that would have been a start for John Gibson where the Ducks had, it wasn't a back-to-back, they had a, a day off between the the last game of the Carolina game and a day off the game after the Carolina game as well. So that last year would have been a John Gibson start. This year they gave that start to Ryan Miller. So I think you can kind of see that they're doing that more often this year where starts last year that would have been John Gibson they're giving to Ryan Miller to give some rest to to, to Gibby from what we saw with how fatigued he was last year near the you know 45 game mark. And we had that article from Eric Stevens that talked about how he'd lost weight because he was so worn out at that point. 
that's obviously something they want to avoid again, and, and it makes sense why they would want to avoid that. And, and I definitely agree. I think Ryan Miller should get some more of those starts down the road, especially after a tough game like this where John Gibson faced 49 shots tonight, and it was kind of a demoralizing effort where he still had to play very hard. You know, He still had to work hard and make some difficult saves. And, you know, sometimes one day's rest isn't enough. And, and maybe, you know, against a team like Winnipeg who likes to play physical and, and can put up a ton of shots despite not playing that great this year, that might be a start that you should give to Ryan Miller because you want to give John Gibson a bit more rest. If, you know, if it was my decision, I would give Ryan Miller the start, and I think you would agree too. And, and I think then you save John Gibson for the start after that and make sure he's completely rested. Absolutely. Uh, next question we had was from E. Wolf on Instagram. Uh, this this revolves around trades. So he said, imagine you are Bob Murray. What would you do given the circumstances? I'm guessing if that means off this game or just the season so far, but would you trade somebody? If you were to trade somebody, who for who? Would you stand pat? So if you are Bob Murray at this point of the season, what would you do? Well, there was an interesting article published last year in The Athletic about uh, all the GMs in the NHL and, and when they tend to trade and what, what type of trades they tend to make. And this is kind of Bob Murray's hot zone starting now until January. This is when he makes most of his trades rather than at the at the deadline. So, And you've seen one already with uh, Good Branson going for Martinson in the seven-round pick. I wrote an article a couple months back that was maybe a little fantastical now seeing how uh, the guy I'm about to mention is playing. But I kind of thought Nick Ritchie needed a, needed a change of scenery. He's he's getting offensive chances here, and he's he's maybe not getting the best bounces, but he's still taking a lot of penalties. And with his salary cap and uh, his low, relatively low cap hit, and maybe his unrealized potential that he still has, I thought he'd be a good fit in Buffalo. Uh, and maybe getting back Rasmus Ristolainen, who didn't def- right-handed defender in Buffalo doesn't necessarily want to be there anymore although they're successful now so maybe he's changed his mind the price might be higher probably will be higher than just Nick Ritchie but I mean uh, he's a guy who I think fits Dallas Eakins style of play very offensive defender excellent on the power play uh, when he's kind of given the right tools and uh, I mean not always excellent he's good on the power play and I think if you can put him in a middle in a middle kind of pairing and not expose him as a top uh, top pairing defender because he's got some deficiencies in his own end uh he'd be a good addition but the price might be too high uh for him especially now that they have good branson uh his cap hit and, and ristolainen's cap hit is pretty high uh but i think you could get i mean some motivation from buffalo because they have they have some uh some cap problems as well and richie's contract is pretty small uh, and so if they could offload Ristolainen off of their, at least their cap hit off of their roster, maybe they don't want to get rid of his skill anymore. Uh, that would be a trade that I would want, but I, that might be a little bit, uh, yeah, like I said, a little bit of a pipe dream. Yeah. That, that's something, uh, we brought up on the last show too, is, is Ristolainen is a guy that the ducks were apparently focused on earlier in the season, but the, the price was too high for Bob Murray to go get. It is an interesting one. Cause you have to think at some point, Brandon Monto is going to come back for the Buffalo Sabres. And they've had some success so far this year with obviously Rasmus Dallin has taken over the the offensive role on the power play for for the Sabres and just in general from Rasmus Dal, uh, from Rasmus Ristolainen. Uh, and then you've got Colin Miller who's come over and, and what he used to do with Vegas and just being a solid presence on the blue line. He's now brought that over to Buffalo and, and then uh, Henry Yokiharu has come up and, and done very well for the Sabres, done pretty much just as well as Ristolainen has. Uh, Yokiharu has four assists in 12 games and Ristolainen has five assists in 12 games. So there is kind of that hole 
that Ristolainen might get moved out at this point, and maybe he wants a fresh start. And I think you know, if if you look at what he what role he's kind of been demoted to with the Sabers. Uh, he would work perfectly on a team like Anaheim where he would be able to kind of get thrust back into that role, at least power play wise and, and been, you know, the main go-to guy, which the Ducks could really use on the blue end is they don't have that power play quarterback and they really haven't had that guy for a very long time. And, and then you throw him uh, not onto a top pairing like Buffalo mistakenly did in the past. You throw him into, you know, a, a middle pairing and, and you don't throw him against the opposing team's top players where he kind of gets victimized for his defensive efficiencies. I think it's something that could work out for both teams and, you know, whatever the package would be for, for Buffalo, I'm sure they'd be looking for some more forward depth up front. And, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, Nick Ritchie could be a guy that could work out there because right now Connor Sheary's playing top nine minutes, and I'm sure that's not ideal for them. But it would be an interesting trade for, for them to pull off by any means. And, and I think, you know, there, there's some groundwork there in place for a trade to work. Uh, whether that actually comes to fruition in the end, I, I'm not sure. Uh, the last question we had is a, is one that seemed to come up with the last three shows for us since we brought it up. Uh, there was a, an article on Sportsnet, I believe, where it was talking about uh, three possible destinations for Taylor Hall at the trade deadline. Uh, I don't remember the two other teams that were listed, but the third team that was listed on that list was the Anaheim Ducks. There was some good points made in the article on how uh, Ray Shiro and Bob Murray have had some history with trades in the past, obviously the most recent one being uh, Sammy Vaughn for Adam Henrique that we all remember. But there has been some other trades in the past that, that the, those two GMs have worked on. And the fact that uh, Taylor Hall is an unrestricted free agent at the end of the season and, and the New Jersey Devils might not want to lose him for nothing if he's not going to come back and the Ducks could desperately use a, a player like Taylor Hall on the, on the top line. Um, only makes $6 million, so that's great for the Ducks. The, the arguments against it are Bob Murray never goes for a player like that, especially <laughs> a rental and what it would cost for it. Uh, what would you think of a deal like that? You know, starting with, do you think that could possibly happen, and and what kind of impact would a player like Taylor Hall have with the Ducks? I mean, uh, the impact first of all, I think. They, I mean, like you said, they need a guy. They need a guy. He's he's a playmaker and a sniper. He can do it all. He would plug right in there. And if you think about uh, Zegras coming up, uh, I would say maybe next season, if they're lucky, maybe the end of this season for a couple of games. I mean, that would be a pretty awesome, uh, a pretty awesome duo to have on their roster so i think i mean why would you not want him is is the obvious yeah. answer in terms of the trade being possible uh yeah that's a tough that's i don't i don't see it happening i mean obviously i'm betting the field here but uh it just seems like the price would be too high i mean you, you need you maybe he'd maybe to be asking for Zegers on the way back and i don't think that would be a wise decision so because because the devils are obviously trying to I don't even know if they're. I mean, you would. You kind of thought that their rebuild was over coming into this year. They had a lot of young guys. Yeah. They got. They got Hughes. They got Subban. They have Heeshear now signed for a long for a long term contract. So, I kind of thought that they would pull it together. Maybe they still will, but if they don't and they're going to trade Hall, they're going to want an absolute. I mean, they they're going to want a Hall for Hall. It's. It, I don't know if it's necessarily a wise move to make. Uh, for the Ducks at this point in their in their kind of rebuild or retool, because you're going to need to get rid of. I mean, you're going to need to give up some young players. It's not like you're going to be trading them, Richie, like I said, Richie or something like that. You, you, it's going to yeah. be expensive, and I think the Ducks are kind of on the precipice of getting back into the playoff hunt. So I would be. Uh, I wouldn't do it unless it was a relatively uh, equal trade. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's obvious. <laughs> The, the thing I always forget with Taylor Hall, too, is because he's been in the league for so long, the guy turns 28 
this year too. So, you know, maybe a rental makes sense on the standpoint that the Ducks, if they were trying to make a playoff push, that's a, a good move to make. But I don't think they're in that position where Taylor Hall automatically makes them a contender. I think it definitely makes them a team who could make the playoffs by any means because Taylor Hall playing on the top line, you know, for the Devils, people consider them possibly being a team who could make the playoffs because they have Taylor Hall as that go-to guy up front. The, the problem becomes after that is it, it's not a Brad Murray type move to go out and get a guy like that as, as a rental. And if you take that out of the picture and you say, well, now they're going to trade for him and sign him, they would likely have to sign him to seven years, which brings him to 35 at the end of his deal. That deal is probably around $8 million, which for the last you know three or four years of that deal is not great for the Ducks. And then any sign and trade it can, uh, right away ups the, the the trade value for a player like Taylor Hall. So you're looking at giving up a lot more. And you mentioned like Trevor Zegras or Maxim Comtois, Sam Steele or Troy Terry. Those would like to be guys that would be going back in a deal like that. And at that point, it just becomes too pricey for where the Ducks are in their rebuild. This you know is two or three or maybe four on the on on the high end of of Taylor Hall in his prime worth it to give up three or four pieces of your rebuild and then kind of have to start again. You know, it, it doesn't fit with the Ducks' plan, as great as it would be, because the Ducks have been looking for that top-line left wing for almost a decade now, it feels like, and, and guys that have kind of been in and out there. You know, Nick Ritchie at one point was supposed to be. Unfortunately, the last bit of our podcast got cut off. The last about two minutes of the show got cut off because we were having some technical difficulties with Twitch. Uh, me and Anthony just went on to discuss for a couple more minutes the validity of the Ducks bringing in Taylor Hall. Uh, me, Patrick, and Jason have all discussed on the last couple shows and we all kind of came up to the same conclusion that the Ducks as nice as it would be wouldn't be able to go out and, and acquire a player for the Taylor Hall for what the price would be. Uh, Anthony goes on to discuss uh, his podcast that he does with Ken Huskins. It's it's a must check out, so you guys have to check out check it out. It's called the Flying V Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. That's B L E A V. Make sure you guys check that out. It's uh, I believe it's twice a week, and it's a great show that him and former NHLer Ken Huskins do. I can't recommend it enough, so make sure you go check out his show. And then thank you again to Anthony for coming on the show. I apologize again to you guys for the last couple minutes getting cut off. Unfortunately, we were having some video issues with Twitch, so when we actually ended our stream, we were a couple minutes behind on the video feed from what the audio feed was. So that's why you're getting me now uh, in in after the podcast is done coming on here and uh, telling you guys what happened. So, uh, again, thanks, for Anthony, for coming on. Uh, hopefully we can have him on the show again. And uh, we'll be back after the Winnipeg game with our regular postgame show. Either uh, me, Patrick, or Jason will be on that show. All right, take care, guys.